I don't know, sometimes uh, the anthems and so on just ring the bell. And that one we just did, the anthem the choir sang just rang my bell. I don't, did anyone else hit them this deeply? Um, partly because my father is 97 and uh, failing at this point. My mother lived to be 90. I have two spectacular grandchildren. And this anthem kind of captures the sweep of our earthly existence in a mm, chrysalis of hope. Bright morning stars are rising. Day is a breakin' in my soul. Some time ago, an old friend of mine Oh, I met him probably 40 years ago, Delmer Chilton. He's now a retired Southern pastor. He shared a magazine article <laughs> concerning what it called those mysterious traffic stops and starts. Those times when uh, you're on the interstate and uh, the traffic just slows and stops and starts and stops and starts. Though there is no wreck, discernible wreck or construction to cause it, I'm guessing most of us have experienced this phenomenon. Well, it turned out that a team of engineers, traffic engineers, wanted to explore this and they wanted to find out the cause for these mysterious occasions. They tested a number of theories. And here is their conclusion. They don't know. <laughs> they honestly don't know why it happens. They could find no mm, organizing theory. It just happens sometimes for no apparent detectable reason. Now maybe you're like me. When I'm on the road and that pattern takes over, I immediately wonder what's going on. I mean, I'd like to know the reasons for things. I want to know the reason for this slowdown. Somehow it would give me a sense of, uh, I don't know, security or something, I don't know. Since I learned there may be no specific cause, it sort of exacerbates the irritation now when it happens. We want to know the reason for why things are the way they are. And short of certain knowledge, we'll fantasize all sorts of reasons. It is our nature to fill in the blanks of life's mysteries. Consider Job for a moment. You remember his story, right? By the way, scholars tell us that the book of Job may be the oldest written text in the Bible as it emerged out of the oral tradition. It might be the oldest text which suggests that the problem Job addresses, namely, why do bad things happen to good people, has haunted the human imagination for literally thousands of years. As the story is told, Job suffers terribly, though he is a good man, and his friends offer up several different explanations concerning why. 
I agree with my friend Delmer when he says there's something within him that rebels against the notion that things can happen with no cause and no purpose. But all of us know that from time to time, life feels just like that. There are times when it feels like we're buzzing down life's highway, making good time, purposefully going about our business, when suddenly things happen which cause life to appear totally meaningless. That's why Job's story has captured human attention for as long as it has. When the book opens, Job is making good time on the highway of life. Things are great. He's got wife, kids, job, spiritual life. Everything's wonderful. And then it all grinds to a halt. The wheels fall off and he's left sitting on the side of the road in the burned out shell of his life. No rhyme, no reason, no poetic justice, no novelistic irony, no cinematic climax. Just meaningless disaster. His friends explore a number of theories as to why this is the case. Most of these theories have to do with either Job's hidden sinfulness or God's lack of justice. And even Job's wife tells him he should just curse God and die. And yet, it is at that precise moment that Job makes his impassioned statement of hope that you heard just a minute ago. Oh, that my words were written down. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and with lead they were engraved on a rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives. Just a few sentences earlier, as the story is told, he is in the depths of anguish. In the midst of his darkest night, Job holds on to hope. And this hope has the ring of eternal truth. No matter what happens, God is still God. And just on the other side of a disastrous dead end, there remains a truth that is larger still. Frederick Buechner wrote, the worst isn't the last thing about the world. It's the next to the last thing. The last thing is the best. It's the power from on high that comes down into the world, that wells up from the rock bottom worst of the world like a, like a hidden spring. That's a pretty good definition of hope, I think. Maybe you know someone who, who lives from that hopeful space. You know, that despite great adversity of one sort or another, they live expectantly and gratefully and hopefully. People like that have an enormous impact on those who know them. They seem to know something the rest of us don't. Now, the gospel lesson takes us for a drive down a similar road 
we're told some people approach Jesus with a silly question. As it is today, in Jesus' time, there were different religious political factions. The Sadducees were the conservative aristocrats, well-off partisans, the power brokers and office holders. They want to trap the upstart Jesus using his own teaching against him. They perceive he believes there is such a thing as life beyond death, and the Sadducees do not. So they concoct a, a fanciful fiction about a childless woman whose husband dies. According to Jewish law, her husband's brother is bound to marry her. In this case, her husband has seven brothers, and each dies in succession, leaving her vulnerable and childless when she dies. So, in the resurrection, the Sadducees ask smugly, whose wife will she be? Now, they don't really care about the answer. They're simply trying to trap Jesus into saying something objectionable. You know, the way news reporters ask leading questions today, trying to get public figures to say something that will offend somebody enough to make the news. I mean, this seems the go-to methodology for most interviews today, doesn't it? You see it every day you check your media of one sort or another. This is especially true in our, our virulently partisan times. And the Sadducees' question is offered like a joke to show how absurd it is to believe in resurrection. Well, as usual in these confrontations, Jesus doesn't fall for the trap, and in this case, answers their question as though they meant it. He tells them they're not thinking big enough. They're trapped by their own cramped opinions. When we die, there are no longer we are no longer conformed to the patterns of this world. Yes, there is resurrection because God is a God of life. But this life shatters all our puny constructs. Now his answer likely offended some, even as it does to this day. Some people find the idea of resurrection in general kind of offensive. Or if not exactly offensive, at least confounding. I mean, how many people attending Easter services aren't simply perplexed by the idea of resurrection? It is perplexing. The fact is, the Sadducees are at least partly right. Resurrection makes no sense on strictly human terms. But hope makes sense. Hope makes sense. We know that. We've experienced that. And you see, hope in the God of life is a rebellion against everything that points toward death. <clears throat> resurrection is the ultimate expression of hope rooted in the revelation that God is the God of life. When Job finally exclaims at the depth of his misery, oh, that my words were written down, that they were inscribed in a book, that they were engraved on a rock forever, for I know that my Redeemer lives. He is rebelling against all of the foolishness of his friends and everything that runs in the direction of death because he knows God is larger than death itself. 
Now we can't say a whole lot more about the specifics of resurrection except following the conclusion Jesus draws, we learn all are received as equals. Here's the thing. The Sadducees ask their question from a privileged position using an unfortunate and vulnerable woman as their foil. That's the, that's the way of the world to this day, isn't it? That's how privilege works, unconscious of its corruption. Remember that in first century Palestine, widow was a code word for someone in need, a less than person in bondage to a greater than person. Well, Jesus turns this upside down, which would not have been lost on his listeners. Get this, the woman no longer needs a man to justify her existence. Oh my. The God of life receives everyone equally, human distinctions of greater and lesser, of privileged and oppressed, of those that belong and those that don't disappear in the realm of the God of life. As Jesus says, they are all children of God, after all. <clears throat> he is not God of the dead, but of the living. For to God, all of them are alive, each one, each one, child of God, the God of newness and forgiveness and liberation. So, you know, when we pray in a short distance ahead, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, you can see that this was actually a call to arms for resurrection to take root today. You know who came to understand this very, very well? And we can all be grateful for this. The African-American slaves and their descendants, their theology was embedded within the spirituals. Songs written in slavery. And most of them have a point of view about the future. They were forward-looking, hopeful about what lay ahead for them, yearning song after song after song, long for the justice that will one day be theirs. In these songs, we hear the profound hope of a people who knew personally and passionately the good news of Jesus' resurrection and who understood themselves to be children of God, even though the world told them they were two-thirds human. Do you see how to, what a radical disruption that is to the way we go about thinking? about one another and how we organize our lives and our politics and our systems and how we understand the nature of suffering.
The spiritual, I've got a robe, goes like this. I've got a robe, you've got a robe. All of God's children got a robe. When I get to heaven, going to put on my robe, going to shout all over God's heaven. I've got shoes. You've got shoes. Of course, they didn't have shoes. Right? I've got shoes. You've got shoes. All of God's children got shoes. When I get to heaven, going to put on my shoes. Going to walk all over God's heaven. That's good stuff, people. Life-transforming stuff. It rocks you down to the soles of your feet if you let it. From out of their miserable condition, they got the simple but simultaneously extremely profound message somehow. A simple but profound message about life and death and life. And they got it with a whole lot more capacity than their white owners who had more in common quite frankly, with the two clever Sadducees than with the man they were trying to trap. And that also rehearses the human dilemma for us, decade after decade after decade, of not recognizing our participation in our own corruption. And this wisdom, though, that we're talking about here, this astonishing wisdom was rooted in recognizing that God was the God of the living who infuses a spirit of hope in the midst of everything that reeks of death. That's why we're here, friends, on the corner of Park and 60, to make and remake this affirmation that we worship the God of life. That's what we're about, that's what we do. And you can tell what a radical correction that is to what we find out there. It's very hard to live. That's why we've got each other. We need each other. I need you for sure. And I'm going to take the risk in saying you need the people sharing the pew with you too. What a gift we have here. What a profound, stirring gift. 